This week on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are getting back to it after taking a break from Thanksgiving, and we are going to talk about a few things that we don't get to talk about because we've been so busy with 2020 and impeachment. So we're going to talk about perfection culture a little bit. We're going to talk about Trump's approval rating and some interesting north-south comparisons, and we're also going to talk about um, a... National Review article about culture wars. So, strap in. We're back. It's the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to December. The last time I talked to you, it was November, and we were getting ready for Thanksgiving. I hope you didn't miss me over the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving holiday. We've had Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all those things have happened. And now we're into December and making the slow descent into Christmas 19 days until. So if you're planning on getting your Christmas shopping going, now is the time. Do not wait. A couple programming notes. Speaking of Christmas... The last show for this year will air on December 21st, and then we will be back in January after the new year um, with podcasts in 2020. So um, the weekly podcast we're going to do for today, the 14th and the 21st, then um, we'll have none until January. So only three podcasts this month. Um, Be aware of that. And uh, we will... Uh, We'll be covering all sorts of exciting topics, including um, the Democratic debate on December 19th. Also, as a housekeeping note, I did um, a major update on my bookstore at CameronJournal.com. If you see the top navigation, you'll see the Widgery Reading Boutique. Um, I updated it with a whole bunch of new books. I have fiction, mystery, thriller politics, some nonfiction stuff, lots of exciting stuff, really interesting, um, really interesting things, um, which is all very, very exciting. Um, There's some really great books there. I have every weekend this month, I have some top picks from the new selection. So if you are looking to give the gift of reading this holiday season, uh, make sure to order from me. Uh, we also um, have audiobooks and ebooks available now. So if you'd like to support an independent boutique and get your audiobooks and ebooks outside of the Amazon ecosystem, that is available to you. So that is it's very exciting. I'm happy to be able to offer those things. I am I'm hoping that people take to it the same way that I uh, think that uh, you will. Um, It'll be really exciting. If you would like to get your books before Christmas, please make sure to order by the 20th. That's the last day um, we can get anything to you before Christmas in the United States. So um, the the 20th is kind of really drop dead. 18th is better. So if you can get kind of get those orders in, that would be great. Um, I already know some people that are going to be making some major orders um, over the next couple weeks. So that will be very, very exciting. That's, I think, all the housekeeping stuff so far. If you want to check out the bookstore, the new selection, as well as audio and um, ebooks, make sure to head over to CameronJournal.com. Um, and right on the front page, you'll be, be able to get to the boutique. I broke out the pages a little bit better, so it's like easier to get around, um, all this type of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be great. So uh, let's move on to the news. The first story I want to cover before you go buy books at the Widgery Reading Boutique is an interesting morning consult poll about tracking Trump. So the um, the approval disapproval number 
um, which is net approval, which is approval minus disapproval, in a great deal of the country has changed. And it has interesting implications for 2020. And here's why. So the Democrats have been looking to a very ancient 50-year-old stronghold for possible new votes um, in 2020. So there's kind of been, it's called basically the Sun Belt play. There is a, a potentiality of turning Texas blue nationally because new people have moved into Texas. Um, and there's also some points throughout the South, especially in like Georgia, Atlanta area, all this type of thing that might give Democrats new votes and new electoral votes in 2020. However, if you look at the Trump's approval numbers, the picture actually should send Democrats running northward. So throughout the South, in like Texas, Kansas, Missouri, um, Florida, it's pretty much flat for net approval. Um, It's equally tied. When you have approval minus disapproval, you end up with kind of a, a middle ground. And then you have states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, leaning toward Trump. However, when you get back up to the Rust Belt, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Virginia, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, you get strong Trump disapproval numbers and you get a net approval that is very much in in the Democrats' favor. So while... It might seem smart to try to do things in the Sun Belt in the South. It looks like the best chance Democrats have for turning things around really is in the Rust Belt, where they lost in 2016. Those voters apparently are not excited about what Trump has done. And that's a not insignificant part of the Electoral College because... Remember, in 2016, the election was lost by about 150,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. It was close to start with. Many people have forgotten that Trump never won by a landslide. He is won, He won by a very small margin in all the right places. If Democrats can regain a Wisconsin, a Michigan, a Ohio, and possibly a Pennsylvania... Trump's pathway to the nomination becomes a lot more difficult. And that, I think... So this polling data is very interesting if Trump's approval numbers actually turn into votes. So, and the nice thing about this is this was a a large, a, a large sampling. So this was 5,000 people per state. And this is also tracked and aggregated over their over the four million surveys they've taken since Trump was in office. So that is, I I think it's very interesting. And the nice thing about their size, you can kind of see how even by fall twenty seventeen, things were kind of turning against Trump. And as you go through twenty eighteen and into twenty nineteen, it just gets worse and worse. And worse and worse. And then this poll was from November. So when there's there's hope, there's hope for Democrats to regain states they lost in 2016, which I think is very interesting. And I think the best part about that is it has very little to do with impeachment. It has a great deal to do with the economy. It has very it has things to do with the trade wars and it has to do with the fact that Trump promised the Rust Belt a lot has delivered on none of it and now when he shows back up you know as the con man that he is and has been people are going to be like well you sold us some snake oil that was supposed to cure our ills I still have my ills Um, I think there's going to be some accountability there. And that's going to be a huge game changer for uh, Trump and company. And it has good things for the Democrats. And that also, in the struggle between the progressive wing of the party 
and the moderate wing of the party. And we're not going to get too crazy into 2020 today. Um, because I, I just want to talk about other, other things. Um, that might indicate why we're seeing, uh, Pete Buttigieg candidacy rise. That might be why Warren and Sanders are struggling. Although Sanders isn't struggling everywhere, some new polling came out and Sanders is doing very well in California and other Super Tuesday states. Um, and the, there's also a matter of who's going to absorb the 7% of support from Kamala Harris. Those people are going to have to go somewhere now that, he, now that she has dropped out. So the next poll that is conducted without her on the ticket will be very interesting to see where her support has gone. If it will go in a very progressive direction, like Warren or Sanders, or it's going to go in a moderate direction, like Biden or Buttigieg. Um, that will be very interesting of how how that's all going to work out. And so a more moderate candidate, the case for a more moderate candidate may be easier in those states where Trump disapproval numbers are high, they're looking for someone else, but they may not be ready to, to be incredibly progressive. I certainly know that's the argument Amy Klobuchar is going to make. Klobuchar's from Minnesota. She's in a state where people are unhappy with Trump. She has to run in red areas and and get those votes to continue winning statewide races. She can't just sit in Minneapolis and get Democrats to vote for her. And the, I'm certainly sure that's the argument she's going to make on December 19th. That's the argument Pete Buttigieg is going to be making on December 19th, that a more moderate voice, someone that a wide variety of people are going to be able to um, get behind, is going to be the key to Democratic victory in 2020. So I thought that was a very interesting morning consult poll. I thought it was very interesting where Trump's disapproval numbers are and how few places have a net approval of him. And that really the reality is that he has the support of about 30% of the country, which is not a governing majority by far. He has that modest 30, 30, maybe 35% support of the country with the rest, with kind of a middle ground of people who aren't necessarily supporting him because they don't like what he's doing, but are not totally against him. And then a contingent of the country that's very much against him. And the fight in 2020 is going to be for that middle third of people who don't like what he's doing, but also need to be convinced that the Democrats have a better idea. And I've written about this already, that really what the, the focus in 2020 has to be showing the Democrats have a better idea and can take things in a different direction. That's what's going to be key in 2020. So leaving 2020 conversation and Trump's disapproval numbers in the morning consult poll, we're going to return to talking about the other big story that has been sucking all the air out of the room, which is impeachment. Now, impeachment has kind of been heating up. The Intelligence Committee finished its hearings before Thanksgiving. Everyone left town for Thanksgiving. And now the Judiciary Committee is on its second day. December 6th on Friday was their second day of hearings. Um, Nancy Pelosi also announced on Thursday, December 5th, that she had asked the um, House Judiciary to begin writing articles of impeachment for a vote on the House floor, um, which caused a viral moment of her talking to a Sinclair reporter who asked, do you hate President Trump? And she said, no, and I do not want that associated with me because I pray for the president daily. I don't hate people, all this sort of thing. And which is, was on the morning shows and Megan McCain was very salty about it on The View. I watched that before I was getting ready to, to do this show. And that, that the impeachment process is moving forward. I don't, I think the, um, Sinclair Broadcasting is a, is basically the local news version of Fox News. So they, Sinclair Broadcasting has bought up a lot of local state, local news stations, and their focus is on bringing, you know, the conservative point of view through TV news. They have required reads for these local newscasters. Um, they were on a John Oliver segment about their shady practices in terms of, you know, how they run news organizations and how they've built up this network 
of, of news and also having reporters like this in these sorts of places to ask these sorts of, of, of questions. It also continues to uh, push this narrative that the impeachment is some type of coup or that it is um, a matter of just hating President Trump as a person and that it has very little to do with the Constitution or anything along along those lines. Um, one of the... Um, one of the things that it was kind of a hot topic this week was they had some constitutional scholars... Um, on to testify to the Judiciary Committee. And they were talking about the the constitutional case for impeachment. And of the three, four of them um, called for impeachment because the founding the founders were afraid of foreign involvement in American elections and that would be primarily through the presidency. The founders put impeachment in place precisely for this situation where Donald Trump has used his office to uh, try to get a political favor from another country to help his own political case on top of working with Russia in the 2016 election and then obstructing justice to cover it up. Let's not forget. And the interesting thing is the Ukraine scandal and the Mueller report have begun to dovetail together through the impeachment process. I don't think most people have noticed, but those of us who've been following the story closely realize that these things have kind of all dovetailed together and that it has been a consistent habit of this administration to seek out foreign help to keep them in power. Now, interestingly enough, as I was reading about, um, uh, you know, reading with this about Nancy Pelosi and all, and this whole idea that the Democrats just hate Trump and that's the only reason impeachment is happening, is Rush Limbaugh kind of went off the deep end and said, quote, Democrats are wandering aimlessly and being propelled by one thing. You're watching it. You watched it with the three so-called expert witnesses. Limbaugh said Friday morning of three of the four constitutional scholars who testified Wednesday and called for impeachment of the president. We are watching pure, raw hatred, he said. They hate the man. They hate the people who elected him. They hate him because he beat them. And that is, that's all part of the huge narrative is that Democrats don't like Trump voters and that that is the whole reason why this impeachment thing has gone on. Here's why that doesn't really hold water. It's 2019 and finally impeachment has started to happen. If it were purely a matter of hatred, the minute Democrats got power in er earlier in 2019, after the 2018 elections, they could have begun impeachment almost right away. And there were people like Rashida Tlaib and others who thought that was a totally fine idea. There were people before the Democrats took power in 2018-19 that were calling for impeachment of the president. Even Nancy Pelosi was very hesitant at first to begin the impeachment process. Then when the Mueller report came out in April, it almost seemed like the whole idea was dead in the water. Impeachment didn't even start being a serious topic for discussion until the whistleblower and the Ukraine scandal surfaced. And people forget, this is only three months ago. It literally, everything that has transpired in regards to impeachment started with a phone call on July 25th. It's now December. That's over five months. And they didn't do the impeachment right away. There was, the whistleblower had to come out. The story had to get underway. This has been a very fast, very quick, fast moving process for a specific reason. That specific reason being that most Democrats did not think it was politically expedient two years before a presidential election to pursue impeachment. The Ukraine scandal provided something the Mueller report did not, and that was an easy, brief, short, simple scandal, but that qualified as high treason and misdemeanors. 
I think one of the mistakes Democrats have made is by not making a wider, a wider ranging probe. And that rather refutes Rush Limbaugh's point. If it was just out of hatred, the Democrats could find all sorts of reasons to throw the book at Trump. Things in the Mueller report, obstruction of justice, mishandling of funds for the border wall, all of these things, emoluments clause violations. I have said this since 2017. The fact that Trump repeatedly goes to his own golf course properties, is still in control of his company, has had the Air Force been staying at his properties and getting fuel from an airport to keep his properties alive, that he tried to have the G7 at Trump Doral in Miami, all these type of things are all giant emoluments clause violations. That is an impeachable offense by itself. The fact that Democrats are keeping this narrow and by that politically viable, I think shows that it's not necessarily out of malice. And, and if you look at impeachment proceedings in the past, for those of us that are old enough from the late 90s, the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton over a consensual sex act in the Oval Office with a woman who is now famous for the worst reason of all and and lie, and and not and not even necessarily that but lying about it in a legal deposition just that one thing they began impeachment proceedings in the house in the late 90s coming out of the Ken Starr report and even though it was part of the whitewater land deal from the 80s in Arkansas and all this type of thing it was because of the Whitewater land deal and doing the depositions when they asked about that. That's where the lie was. From that one two-second clip, they did an impeachment proceeding. Trump has done far worse than lie in a legal deposition. Not that he hasn't. He has. But he's already done far worse. And so it's not out of malice or out of hatred. If the impeachment proceeding were simply out of malice or out of hatred, they would be finding everything under but the kitchen sink to throw at this man, and they're not. And the reality is that if the positions were reversed and it were a Democrat doing this thing, the Republicans would have long pursued impeachment. There was lots of, I mean, if we look at the eight years Obama was in office, there were lots of people who were, especially like Fast and Furious and Benghazi, all this type of thing. Oh, we have to have impeachment. We have a criminal president. He's a Muslim. He's not American. Trump's whole political career started from the birther scandal. I mean, which ultimately was the whole, this person shouldn't even be in office and he's invalidate, invalidating his president. Trump has not suffered anything of what Trump put the previous office holder through. It was stupid and unnecessary. And th and, that, and a lot of people will say, oh, well, this impeachment is the same thing. It's just the same side, two sides of the, of the same, of, of the same coin, only Democrats using constitutional processes in order to get rid of this man. I don't think anyone is prepared to realize what type of a criminal organization that Trump is running. And I had plenty of issues with Obama. We can talk about drone wars, Fast and Furious, the Benghazi affair, ceding Crimea to Russia, which caused the civil war in Ukraine to start with. We can talk, we have a very frank conversation about all those things, and I welcome it. But the reality is, is that Trump has been literally sitting in the Oval Office, criming around and bringing the federal government, the largest corporation in the world, to its knees by making sure that no decision in the federal government is made without it starting and ending from the White House. And that is something that should concern every American. And the fact that he has been using the federal taxpayer dollar and the, fed, and the power of the federal government for his own personal political ends is something that should concern every American. And that's the main thrust of impeachment. And that's why it's important. And that's why it's not out of malice or hate or hatred of Trump voters. Although we're going to get to that right here shortly. Um, it has much more to do with abuse of power. That's where the thrust of, of the Trump problem is, and that's why impeachment is now important at this point in time. <sighs> that's impeachment. So I'm glad this week we don't have to do too much on 2020, although Kamala Harris dropped out, which was sad because she was my gal. I have to look for someone else. But an impeachment was pretty quiet this week, so we can actually get to do something we don't get to do very often, and that's 
talk about other things. And before we circle back around to Trump and the culture wars, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about, uh, perfectionism and mental health of people and how it's kind of sort of killing us and how social media changes that. So let's dive into this topic. The topic of perfectionism is close to my heart because it's something I have struggled with myself in my own life. It's something where I... For me, in many areas of my life, good enough was not good enough, if that makes any sense. And it's something where I think a lot of people struggle with this. And so this article I found when I was briefly looking through things um, was kind of interesting to find. And especially, I think in this day and age, it has been amplified because we live in an age of social media. So much more of our lives are exposed to the public than it used to be. It, it's taking a toll on people. And in this article, it kind of starts out with like a girl who got a bad grade in fifth grade. But it says here that uh, once an issue that affected only a select few, perfectionism is now a growing cultural phenomenon fueled by modern parenting and social media and an increasingly competitive economy, researchers say. Struggle with perfectionism has been the subject of multiple TED Talks, Instagram memes, Oprah discussions, and books. Even celebrities such as Demi Lovato, Zendaya, and Natasha Leon are opening up about their battles with perfectionism. Uh, Netflix star Lana Condor said, we're so sucked into our screens and our life is so perfectly curated. Um, she said in an episode of the High Anxiety video series about mental health, quote, you see other perfect lives and your life isn't like that. And so if I go out and people see that my life isn't perfect, I'm afraid they'll judge me. Um, look around these days and you can find perfectionism everywhere, said Thomas Curran, a psychologist at the University of Bath. I see it in my own friends and colleagues and the students I teach. In an age where social media makes it possible to constantly compare your own life to others, perfectionism has only become amplified. Um, Karen and his colleague Andrew Hill gathered data from more than 40,000 college students who'd taken a psychological measure of perfectionism between 1989 and 2016. In 1989, about 9% of respondents posted high scores in socially prescribed perfectionism, but by the end of the study, they had doubled to about 18%. Quote, on average, young people are more perfectionistic than they used to be, Hill says, and the belief that other people expect you to be perfect has increased the most. And it, it goes on and talks about like how to fix it and recover from it and all this type of thing. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is that, and then we're going to get to um, the hidden mental health crisis in rural, or in rural America, which goes into an article we posted on Rouge's a couple months back. Um, the reason I, I wanted to bring this was because, for one, it's not impeachment or 2020. I think it's important. But I think also, too, it's emblematic of the age that we live in in terms of the constant uh, the constant pursuit of living up to other people's ideas and standards and that you're compare like you're comparing your everyday life to their highlight reel. Like, and that's the problem with social media is we take the good picture from the good angle. We make sure our hair is done and our makeup is right. We make sure that, you know, we're, that we're dressed good and all this type of thing. And so if someone's looking through social media being like, Oh my God, she looks so great. And she has thigh gap and she has this and she has that all this type of thing that we're, we're kind of like, in this idea that we have to live our lives this way all day, every day. And then if we are not living that way all day, every day, there's something wrong with us. There's something defective. We're doing something wrong or we are trying, we're just not trying hard enough. And the article doesn't go into it deeply, but the competitive economy aspect of this, I think is what really highlights it the most for most people, because anything decently paying 
is so competitive and it is so um, difficult to make one's way and get ahead in this world. I think people are looking at any aspect of their life where a deficiency might be present. So, for example, it's like, well, you know, okay, you went to college and got a degree, but did you get good grades? Did you do an internship? Did you go to the right school? You know, are you wearing the right things? Do you have the right professional attitude? Did you go to every networking event that you were supposed to? If not, why not? And so it, it kind of like, it, it, it's, we're getting to a place where it seems, I think to most people, it seems like in this economy, especially when it comes to job and career, it seems like good enough isn't good enough that you have to be the absolute best. You have to go the extra mile, do the extra thing. And the reality is it's exhausting mentally, physically, and emotionally. It even extends into relationships because relationships are costly and expensive. Breakups are costly and expensive. Housing is expensive. So people end up living together in, um, in, you know, in, uh, you know, earlier ways or in different ways than before. And, it's, and there's no kind of room for error in terms of like, oh, are you with your card? Are you keeping up your car maintenance? Are you, you know, eating healthy? Are you looking younger? Are you staying thin? Are you exercising all the time? You know, because this health thing can happen and that health thing can happen. And it's it's hard to allow life to live life when you don't have health insurance or your health insurance isn't very good and your health problems can spiral into financial problems. There's, it seems, I think a lot of the pressure to be perfect, however that's defined for you, or however that your culture defines that, or however we're defining that as a culture, comes from the fact that we live in a situation where we're not allowed to make a mistake. We're not allowed to recover. You have to say the right thing on social media to avoid can cancel culture. You have to do all the right things to have good health so that you're not sick and in the hospital. You have to you know, constantly be doing, 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 going, 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 eating the right thing, getting the right education, getting the good enough grades, going to the right internship, the whole cycle of it, I think for many people is simply crushing because it is a lot of work. And I think the reason why in years past people didn't focus on it as much I think is due to the fact that there was room for life. There was room to make mistakes. If you didn't get good grades, that was still a job for you. If you didn't, um, you know, if you didn't go to every networking meeting, that was okay because you could still apply around or talk to other people or do something else. There was a chance for life to interfere in what you were doing and to flex into something different. And that didn't automatically mean you were going to struggle, be poor, have no retirement, have no housing options, have no health care, and die. But in the last decade, the economy has changed in such a way that I think for a lot of people, they feel like if they don't, in every single step, perfectly prescribe and follow every single bit of the rules, that they're going to just end up falling flat on their face. And that's something where that overall anxiety, I think, is building into many, many parts of our society. And the fact of the matter is, our thanks to social media, our lives are recorded. So the mistake that you made decades ago can come back to bite you and haunt you in ways that you don't even understand and certainly maybe didn't expect. And that is, that's something where it's incredibly hard to have, it's incredibly hard to be able to make mistakes, get messy, you know, and learn and grow as a person because life is an ongoing conversation of experiences when it seems like if you don't land it perfectly right the first time, you're doomed for the rest of your life and you only get one chance. And if you blow that one chance, then that's it. And that's not really true. That's not how life should work. But I think the perception for a lot of people, especially if you grew up middle class or better, that that's the way it should be, that there's really no chance to fail, pick yourself up, move on, and do something else. Failure is something that gets punished and punished harshly. 
And and I think also sometimes you don't realize until years later, oh, I should have made different decisions or done different things. And it's hard to recover. And I, I've seen this in my own life. There's many times where I have sat and said, oh, I wish I hadn't majored in the humanities. Who knew there were no jobs in that? Um, and I graduated during the recession. I finished my undergrad in 2009 and my grad school in 2011. And I remember going to a job fair in... Um, at college and they asked me what my major was and I said political science and they said oh we're actually not looking for anyone from that major today and I left I did I, I left and that was the first indication I ever got that I had done something really really wrong um, I did have a professor in undergrad tell me one time that I should leave the program and there's, there's been a part of me for a long time, especially, you know, when I'm paying bills and looking at the bank account, where I'm like, I, sh I should have, I should have gone to, to the business school for sure. Um, I wrote about my experience looking at going to get an MBA last year and the GMAT and all that sort of thing. And that was another situation where I would taken standardized tests before and I didn't realize how hard the GMAT was. I studied for it for four weeks. I came five points short of the score I needed. Um, and I, I realized with my research that actually people study for three to six months and take it multiple times before they get the score that they want. And I just didn't, I didn't research, I didn't do, I just didn't do it good enough sort of thing in order to get to where I was going. And there's just so many times it's like, oh, I wish I hadn't started this publication or worked at this magazine or done this thing or how is my life added up to anything that has moved the conversation of my life forward. And I think given the fact that there's just so few chances because of the way the economy is structured and the way automation is happening and all this type of thing. There's so few chances to get ahead that the pressure to do it and do it right perfectly the first time in all areas of your life is on because it seems like, you know, oh, you made a mistake, a romantic mistake in your 20s. Well, you know, now you have kids and dating is more difficult and the field is so broad and, and all this type of thing. Or you didn't have sex early enough. Or you didn't date when you were young or you, you know, and it just in every area, it's kind of like the I think the pressure is on for people to do things right and perfectly the first time because it seems like if you don't, you're just going to get left on the side of the road while the rest of the world simply moves on without you. And that's something that is, it's soul crushing. It's mind numbing, really. The reality of the situation is that oftentimes, I think I think less so in the job and career sphere, more so in the romantic and personal life, is that good is good enough. You don't have to have your hair perfectly coiffed every day. You don't have to have the perfect outfit and the best makeup and all this type of thing to in order to get ahead in any area of your life. I think for some people, their careers are probably more resilient than they really think that they are. Um, but you, you know, you hear the horror stories of, well, so-and-so picked the wrong major or didn't have good enough grades, they didn't get this internship, whatever have you, and now they're working at Starbucks, all this type of thing. Um, and I think that has to do with our society's perception of work and career and the reality of wages and the reality that, you know, we, we, are, we are living in a service sector economy and service sector jobs do not pay very well. That's something we have to work on. Um, and I'm actually going to write about that in the new year. We're, we're going to go down that road of how to reimagine the United States as a service sector economy. And, and it, it's, you know, you don't necessarily want that person to be you. And I think that's what causes people to try and work and, and beg, borrow and steal and all this type of thing to do the best they can so that they don't end up the person with the graduate degree working at Starbucks. I, and I get that. I see that, I feel it, I graduated into the Great Recession, I completely understand that. But the reality is, is that we're falling apart. And the, the I think that unfortunately, for better or for worse, that pressure and anxiety is not going anywhere, especially as the global marketplace continues to be so competitive 
and we have so many people competing for oftentimes an ever smaller group of jobs as automation takes over and makes it so humans are doing perpetually less. And I, I imagine that a probably very similar conversation was had about this time last century as at that time the economy was moving from one economy to another. And I imagine also that this conversation was had at the beginning of the 19th century as we were moving from a pre-industrial artisanal economy to an industrial economy. And that was a massive transition that people don't emphasize enough what it was like for workers to move from a pre-industrial artisanal economy where they owned their businesses, they owned their professions to move to a wage economy that prioritized capital over labor. And if you want to know more about that, you can buy my book at CameronJournal.com. The first essay, How We the People Became We the Corporation, I go into all of that. Um, I recently added the landing page for the book to the front page of the site, so it's super easy to buy now. And um, that, uh, yeah, that is... Uh, that's a conversation I think we've had before. And I think when this, when things are not clear, the system is not clear, what rules you have to follow in order to have a life and get ahead and make good money and just survive or not be grindingly poor, it seems like you have to do it all because the rules are unclear. And that's soul-crushing and mind-numbing. So... I believe at this point enough, let's talk about mental health in rural areas. So I have written about the problems of rural America and hidden crises, especially economically, all this type of thing for a while. The crisis of rural America has been something that has been talked about off and on since the 90s because the kids didn't stay in the rural areas. They moved to the cities and suburbs. Um, and... And I've, I've talked about the labor shortages and how the economy has changed around that and all this type of thing. But what's this story, which I'm going to talk about briefly because it's, it's pretty straightforward, um, it was talking about the hidden mental health crisis. And it was there's a video that goes with it, which I'm not going to play. But it says um, the main part of the problem is that it's very difficult to access mental health services in rural America, but it's often those people that miss it most. It says here, the majority of non-metropolitan counties in the United States don't have a psychiatrist and almost half lack a psychologist. The paucity has resulted in a public health crisis. Rural Americans suffering from a psychiatric condition are more likely to encounter police than receive treatment. Each year, two million mentally ill Americans, most of whom aren't violent criminals, end up in jail. This is the case in Cochise County, Arizona, a sprawling area nearly the size of Rhode Island and Connecticut combined, but with 3.8 million fewer residents. Many 911 calls in the area involve people with mental health issues, and according to Mark Daniels, a local sheriff, 67% of the people in Cochise County Jail were diagnosed with a mental health condition. In the short documentary, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, directed by James Burns for PBS Independent Lens, Daniels and other residents of Cochise speak to the alarming implications of the area's lack of psychiatric resources. It says here, quote, there's an increasing demand for mental health services across the board, and we can't keep up, Dr. James Reed says in the film. Reed is just a, one, of, is one of just two mental health professionals serving the entirety of Cochise County. Quote, with the lack of resources in a county like Cochise, it is a revolving door to prison, Daniel says. The options are limited. One option that remains constant is the arrest. I'll be the first to tell you that's not the answer. And it goes on to talk about how, as is so often true, we have such a terrible mental health crisis um, that... Uh, that we need far more mental health professionals. We need far more uh, people involved in getting people the type of help that they need that usually doesn't involve prison. And that's true when you work with homeless people. That's true when you work with anyone who is, you know, suffering in that way. And that can be anything from as simple as depression and PTSD to things as complicated as schizophrenia. 
And it's something that's one of the advantages, I think, of Medicare for all is we'll be able to go county by county, state by state and start to see how we can fund the necessary services to get the help to those people where they need it. And as, you know, people move away from these rural areas and more and more people move to towns and cities, these shortages and problems, which mental health care, food access, all this sort of thing, just get progressively worse and worse and worse. So that's if probably if there's any one argument for Medicare for all, I would say that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good one. So let's talk about political ads for a moment. I found this story from The Guardian, and this is from Claire O'Donohue Velisic. And the headline is, I worked at Facebook. Here's how to fix social media's political ads problem. She says, I know abuses have given online ads a bad name, but banning them isn't the answer. And the things that she brings up is no more micro-targeting. It says here, some political campaigns have used third-party data and digital to honest ends, but many others, particularly here in GDPR-protected Europe, refused to do so and still managed to be effective and successful. Though Cambridge Analytica was a global scandal and exposed lax data controls, the belief internally at Facebook, and one I still hold now I've left, is that the actual impact of its dodgy data on elections was overstated. Political campaigns don't need to connect big data and digital, and the methods can be abused, so big tech just put an end to it. At the moment, political campaigns can upload their own data to Facebook to target voters with ads, a process called custom audiences. But Facebook has no way of knowing where these custom audience lists came from, and whether they were sourced legitimately or purchased from third parties. Banning the use of off-platform data sources, whether that's email lists of party members, voter files, or dubiously purchased contact lists from data companies, for political ads, as Google has just announced, would immediately provide reassurance that the sort of creepy micro-targeted ads we have seen proliferate will be no more. If tech firms were to restrict ad targeting only to location and demographics, campaigning would survive. The appropriate messages would still reach the right people, but without the violation and manipulation. She also goes on to say there's no more dark ads. Um, and dark ads are um, uh, people ads from people without names, addresses, and, and identification, which Facebook doesn't allow. There's a very complicated advertising verification process. Trust me, I know. I've went through part of it and I'm trying to go through another part of it. So it's that's and she also says no more paid lies, um, news and information um, and having some fact checking when it comes to ads. It says Facebook's own employees are confident there can be a middle ground on fact checking, which neither mandates the tech firm shut down freedom of speech nor allows the current free for all to continue unchecked. In my five years working with political ads, I joined many smart, ethical people at Facebook grappling with the unexpected challenges we were facing and trying hard to come up with the right responses. My guess is that the current intransience is a question of financing. Although many may think that big tech earns big sums from political ads, it doesn't, as is clear from the data that Google shares about the political advertising it runs. Meanwhile, every investment the sector makes in stamping out abuses costs money, potentially more than some firms are making from political advertising in the first place. I liked this article because it was it's practical. Um, she has three kind of important things where she says, look, we can just we can do these things actionably to make them happen. I do chuckle at the line that I just read about them tackling unexpected problems. And this is where I this it's moments like these where I say this is a defense of liberal arts education, because if any one of the people working at Facebook had taken or dare I say paid attention to a political science class in college or understood human behavior, taken a psychology class, an anthropology class, and understand human psychology at all, or even thought through the beginnings of the consequences 
of what they were building and what they were doing and how it could be manipulated or what happens when you start taking political ads or having pages for politicians or all this type of thing. If anyone had thought through that process literally at all, I'm sure this would have come up. And it looks like big tech is scrambling to solve these problems because I am convinced, especially when it comes to political ads, it never honestly crossed their mind about what taking political ads would mean, what spreading fake news would mean, what connecting people together would do in terms of, okay, what if we give a platform where neo-Nazis can meet up, where evil people can meet up, where racists can meet up, all this type of thing. And I don't think... I mean, it's obvious to us now because hindsight is twenty twenty. And I, I, when it comes to connecting the whole world and making people for easy to communicate, I don't think anyone could have seen the potentiality for the dangers of, like, white nationalism via social media. That wasn't obvious. When it came to the proliferation of fake news, that was obvious because blogs promoting questionable news stories or questionable commentary on real-life events because they're not doing news. They're doing questionable commentary on real-life events. Um, is that something that already existed. It was already on the internet. It was already in the ecosystem. It was already happening. It, it was in place. Already there. And that's something where the reality is that we are all using platforms invented by people in their early 20s who didn't have the life experience to understand what they were doing, what they were doing. And many of them are still in control. Jack, Dor Jack Dorsey is still in control of Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg and I are the same age. Like, are, are these are the people that are that are that have platforms so large they can threaten established democratic institutions, start revolutions, change things in the world. And the reality is the whole world is being run by people in their early 30s. And, and that, what for one, should give us pause, but for two, should also remind us that the, these platforms are created by people who were very young, who didn't know what they were doing, just figured, oh yeah, we'll build this great tech thing and we'll make a whole bunch of money and life will be great and we'll be able to create all of these things and it'll be super cool. And there's no... I think one of the problems in Silicon Valley, especially when it comes to political ads, there's still no adults in the room. There's no one who's saying, okay, we need to have advertising policies. We need to be able to write some editorial standards for our ads and make sure that people meet them and have them and put the, and have some rigor on those or partner with news organizations financially to be able to create some some rigor on on those and be able to really make sure that when you have a billion people on your platform, that what you're doing, you're doing the best you can in terms of ethics, especially when it comes to your advertising. I'm not saying they should arbitrate what gets posted. That's literally impossible to do, but there's no excuse why they can't do a lot better with political ads. And I feel like while this advice is practical with like no micro-targeting, no dark ads, letting know who is paying for the ads and who those people are and linking out to websites and all that type of thing is that th you need some actual adult conversation about what is going on with these platforms, what type of ads that they're taking and what kind of information or disinformation is being spread by those sorts of things. And I think they need to verify their partners more. What Cambridge Analytica has done shouldn't necessarily be allowed. Um, and I think I think Google is wise to not allow third-party source data to be blended through their platform for advertising. And she, she said that, you know, with the micro-targeting to allow age and demographics. That's fine. That's well past enough. We don't need to go to the creepy level. We should know who the ads are coming from. That is absolutely, absolutely important. And it's also time to you know, have those editorial standards in terms of advertising. Those are actionable things, but I think the fact that she acts like this is a new problem, because it's not. Political advertising in the 19th century was hilariously crazy. Um, and, and perhaps I should do a bit about that one day. 
Um, it, this is not a new problem. But again, these are people who are super young, many of whom dropped out of college. They never took a history class. They never took a political science class. They don't understand how democracy works. They don't understand how public forums work. They, they do not understand how the actual world works. They can code themselves into and out of almost any problem, but they don't know what actions they're doing, what effect it has on everyone else. And the fact that Facebook, Google, and Twitter can topple a government, undermine democracy, elect a president, all this type of thing, is something that should truly frighten everyone. And this short 600-word article talking about how we might want to consider maybe doing something about political ads but not banning them entirely is only the first step in a long journey of understanding what has been unleashed with the advent of social media. Very truly, very truly. All right, we're approaching an hour. We're going to go a little bit long today because we didn't have a show for two weeks. I'm going to wrap up with this story about the Trump and the culture war. So I looked at the piece from National Review that this Vox article is based on. And it the, the basic premise of this is that Michael Brendan Doherty on the National Review asked why the left is not giving up its culture war. Here, he starts his article in this way. Sometimes liberals try to explain conservative behavior as the product of false consciousness. Sometimes they claim to not understand it at all. Ezra Klein takes up the challenge of answering by examining a recent speech by Attorney General William Barr. Shockingly, he more or less hits it on the head. Christians, conservatives, he writes, believe they're being routed in the war that matters most, the post-Christian culture war, and they see themselves as woefully unprepared to respond with the ruthlessness that the moment requires. Klein gives an unflattering description of this as an apocalyptic psychology that motivates the strained defenses of even Trump's worst behavior. Along the way, Klein dings National Review's editor Rich Lowry for saying he will root for Trump in 2020, despite the fact that the president doesn't respect the separation of powers in our government, he doesn't think constitutionally, and says and does things that no president should do or say. Klein calls it a form of Flight 93-ism, after the 2016 essay by Michael Anton declaring the contest between Trump and Hillary Clinton as a Flight 93 election, in which conservatives must charge the cockpit or die. Of course, Ezra Klein did not reply, but um, Zach Beauchamp at Vox certainly did. And... He, the basic idea of the National Review article is that if the right won't give up issues like abortion and religious freedom, why should the left, why should the left be stuck in being pro-choice and against churches doing whatever they want? And if the right, if the left has dug in on those issues and, and the right has dug in on those issues, why should the right come to the left rather than both sides come to the center? And he says, quote, Democrats are no more willing than social conservative Trump supporters to lay down their culture war objectives and enmities in order to save the Constitution from the president. The whole idea being is that neither side may like Trump, but neither side is willing to moderate their social justice positions in order to stop Trump. Because if the evangelicals and the left got together and decided Trump was a non-starter, he wouldn't survive the next election. But the reality is that religious conservatives won't do that because that would mean getting too close to abortion people. The left are not going to sacrifice a woman's right to choose to get close to the religious conservatives. There's going to be no compromise between the two sides. And so Trump can get away with whatever he wants because the left is dug in, the right is dug in. And the article goes on to say, Doherty believes that both groups are, when you get down to it, pretty much the same on these issues. Both care much more about issues relating to social justice and religion and public life than they really do about Trump. And according to the this article, the idea that Zach is going for is that the evangelicals are far more behind Trump than he thinks. Um, it says here that uh, evangelicals like this president, they don't think he's a threat to the, to the republic at all. 77% of white evangelicals approved of Trump's job performance in an October PRRI survey. They were the only religious group in the survey with a majority believing Trump has not damaged the dignity of the presidency. And 
Apparently, 61% of white evangelicals support Trump's travel ban. Um, a Pew report found that 68% did not believe the U.S. had an obligation to take in refugees. And 75% of white evangelicals support Trump's proposal for the U.S.-Mexico border wall. And so the kind of the, the outcome of this back and forth is that... Um, and it, it's kind of funny because I love when I say things and they and then the rest of the media catches up to me. So in 2016, I said, look, this election had nothing to do with policy. It had to do with with race and it had to do with demographic changes and that white voters have started voting as a block to racially defend themselves. This is the biggest change and it will affect elections for the next 50 years. I heard someone mention it once on CNN, and I've never heard it ever again. It took two years for the media to catch back up to itself and to me. At the end of the article, he mentions the thing I have also said is that there are two competing worldviews. And the final line says it all. The truth is we're locked not in several culture wars, but one giant one. A battle over the country's future about which partisan camps have very, very different ideas. And that's the reality. On the Republican side, you have one worldview of the country that has women not having a right to choose, gay marriage being limited or non-existent, um, and, you know, having churches have the levity to do whatever they want tax-free. On the other side, you have women's right to choose, you have expanded, you have gay marriage and, and rights for LGBT people, you have expanded, you know, protections for people of color and affirmative action, you are working at solving minority rights problems and complaints that have been long unaddressed, you're working on housing, you're working on transit, you're working on making the country a radically better place, not just for the few people, but for everyone, and having multiple voices at the table. And that's the thing I mentioned in my book is that right now we are trying to see if the American experiment can survive having more than just the white voice at the table. And it's not clear that we can. And it's not going so well so far. And so you have a group of people like evangelical voters, which according to this polling data, overwhelmingly back Trump regardless of his many problems and issues because ultimately they view him as a defense against the onslaught of a new, more liberal, far more progressive, and dare I say European society where their values are not necessarily um, projected into the greater culture. And this is a situation where you can believe what you want to believe. You can do what you want to do. If you do not believe in abortion, don't get one. If you don't believe in gay marriage, don't get gay married. But just because you choose not to do something doesn't mean that the rest of society shouldn't. And that's the real problem, is that evangelicals believe that not only should, you know, they not do these things, even though they do when they get their mistresses pregnant, but that's another discussion. Um, but that rather that they should that their values should be reflective in the entirety of society and that everyone should be forced to live to their unique religious prescriptions. And that's where progressivism, even from the early 20th century in fights over prohibition and labor rights and all this sort of thing, where the rubber hits the road is that why should one small minority of society with uniquely religious views decide public policy for everyone else in society it's just simply not fair. And I think this idea of having one giant culture war is so salient right now because that really is what's going on. There is a giant culture war between a religious value-based world and one that is based on liberal values, humanism, and the idea of doing what is best for all humans and all people involved without a religious or, you know, faith-based narrative. And that's something where, um, where, you know, when you look at these cultural, cultural battles, they all kind of return to the same problem. The downside is that I think we're going to see, Chuck Todd said something a while back that I thought was very interesting. We're going to see perhaps a series 
of very polarizing one-term presidents where it's like, we'll lurch to the left and we'll lurch to the right and we'll lurch back to the left, back and forth, and that this may become politics for quite some time because you have two distinct groups with two very different ideas fighting for one country. And perhaps America has never been more divided than this since perhaps 1858. And two and a half years later, we were engaged in a civil war. And I think right now, I mean, I think everyone feels like we're, you know, as Joe Biden said, we're fighting for the soul of America. And the reality is that one half wants, you know, health care and progressive ideas and policies and people able to live and do as they like. And one side sees a country where there are too many minorities, too much sex, too much looseness, too much abortion, too many problems, and that they're strictly religious based values being de-emphasized in favor of a different set of values that's more in harmony with the way people actually live their lives. And it's unclear as to which side is going to win. So um, that's the show for this week. I was all very fascinating. I am going to uh, dash and get this edited and uploaded for everybody. And we're going to have a, a great weekend as we get into the holiday season. So have fun with your holiday shopping. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you guys next week. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Carroll on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.